Hello and welcome to Stump, the Sinan's MCR podcast series, bringing you the world-class research done by graduate students at Sinan's College Oxford in an easy and non-technical way. Our guest on the podcast today is Brad Young. Brad, hello, how are you? Good, Graham, thank you. Looking forward to having a chat. Brad is a first-year DPhil student in the Department of Materials. His research is about novel materials for nuclear fusion. He did his undergraduate degree and integrated master's uh, in material science uh, at Oxford at St. Edmund Hall. He is also involved in many aspects of university life. He plays the French horn in the university orchestra, and he also finds time to play hockey for the men's first team. So Brad, I'm going to start with the usual question, which is to ask you to present uh, in general for anyone who's non-initiated what material science is. Yeah, of course. The reason I chose it, it's a, it's a great mix of a few subjects, a bit of physics, a bit of chemistry, a bit of engineering. So, you know, I was leaving school, I kind of didn't want to give up all my sciences and all that and just focus on one. So it's a nice bit of a hybrid. And we really focus, I guess, the best way to describe it, maybe a bit of solid state physics. We, um, we look at building materials or uh, electronic materials, all that kind of thing, and um, basically try and work out what's the best thing to make stuff out of. Could you summarize a bit what your thesis is going to be about? Yeah, so my thesis is um, new zirconium alloys for nuclear fusion technology. So nuclear fusion, it's a new, hopefully a new type of energy, energy source replacing nuclear fission power, um, hopefully, which is what's used around the world at the moment. And at the moment, the materials that we use to make the nuclear reactor out of aren't, aren't fantastic. There's a lot of room for improvement in those. So I really think that there's, there's a field where we can, we can improve on those materials. And zirconium is a really good candidate material. But we're looking at mixing that with other metals to try and improve its properties. You never use in any kind of structural material. You never use one element on its own. You always mix it with other elements to make it stronger. So looking at what we alloy it with to make it a better metal. So you mentioned uh, fusion technology and reactors. Could you just present why it is, if it's possible, in a, in a non-technical way or in a way understandable to the non-initiated? And, and as well, why we should be looking into fusion technology uh, as opposed to the existing technology we know to produce electricity? It's a, it's a massive question about, you know, the future of producing energy worldwide is obviously um, a huge deal. So nuclear fusion technology, you have two different types of nuclear technology. One takes very small atoms, binds them together to make bigger atoms. And uh, the other nuclear fission takes really big atoms, breaks them apart to form small atoms. And both of those processes release energy but only if you do them on the right atoms. So for nuclear fusion, we have to use really light atoms. For nuclear fission, they have to use really heavy atoms like uranium. Nuclear fusion, there's a lot of inherent benefits over nuclear fission. For example, the, our fuel is hydrogen, which is obviously pretty, pretty safe, like it's everywhere. There's quite a lot of it around, you know. Uh, nuclear fission, their fuel is, is uranium, enriched uranium, which there's not a lot of, it's pretty dangerous that's kind of the benefits over nuclear fission. There's a lot of other benefits as well. Inherent safety, hopefully the radioactive waste that is produced is much less long-lived. So it's uh, over a long time scale, it's safer. Then you look at the other types of renewable energy 
I, I want to clarify here, I'm using renewable energy to include nuclear. There's a bit of a debate about whether nuclear counts as renewable energy, but I'm going to go with it. I'm going to say it does. Um, so over other types of renewable energy, I've got solar, wind, things like that. There is an argument. There are some people that argue that nuclear technology is not needed, that we'll be able to get by on solar power, on wind power, things like that. I think potentially in the UK is the country we are. It's pretty, pretty windy here, as I can tell from my cycle into work this morning. But you know, other countries, maybe that's not, not the case. And uh, I think there's definitely, there's definitely a gap that, to stop our emissions of greenhouse gases that I think nuclear technology is really needed. What, why is the state currently of fusion technology? Are there prospects of using it anytime soon? Because I think that's the main argument of the proponents of alternative energies to say it costs a lot of money and we never know uh, if, if it's going to be working. There's a bit of a running joke in the nuclear fusion community that goes around that uh, if anyone asks how long, how far we are away from getting it to power our homes, it's 25 years. And it's been 25 years for the last 100 years. Maybe it's true this time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways we're looking at. There's, there's now, rather than having kind of one or two programs looking at fusion, there's a lot of programs we've got. ITER is being built in the south of France at the moment. That's an experimental reactor. There's a big conglomerate of different countries who are then working on using the knowledge from that to build another reactor called DEMO, which should provide power. Um, in the UK, we have a program called STEP that's being built to provide power. There's other thoughts as well. You know, these, those two experiments that I've mentioned, they're a type of fusion that's called mag magnetic confinement fusion. But there's other types of fusion as well, uh, inertial confinement fusion. That's being, there's a company in Oxfordshire again that are working on that. They've got really ambitious timescales about when they want to produce power for the grid. So I think it's, you know, hopefully 20, 25 years, maybe we're getting there. There's going to be a lot of hard work involved to get there. There's a lot of things in the way, but it's, it's possible. But you have to have the argument that, you know, we need to act before that. Like nuclear fusion is 100% not just the answer to climate change at all. There's a lot of stuff that we need to do besides nuclear fusion as well. You know, we can't, we can't just wait for this, this magic bullet to come and solve all our problems. And on a more personal note, you had a trip to Fukushima in your undergrad. How did you find it? And did that sort of lead you to want to study renewable energy? 100%. It was amazing. It was a trip with the university orchestra. We, yeah, we went to, went to Fukushima. We went, we went to Tokyo to start off with, then went to Fukushima. And obviously everyone's heard of the devastation that happened there. And not just from the nuclear accident, from the tsunami as well, the huge personal tragedy. And to go and to go and kind of experience the place was, was unbelievable. It definitely cemented, you know, this, I know this is what I want to do now from going there because I had a, a chat while I was out there to a guy called uh, Hangai-san. He was part of the company called TEPCO. They managed the Fukushima power plant. And I think he had left just before the big accident happened, but he, having spoken to him, he felt a huge amount of personal guilt about what had happened with the, with the accident. And he then made basically the rest of his life's work was setting up these youth projects and these projects in Fukushima to help rebuild the area. And it's an amazing area with amazing people that's really struggling. You know, a lot of their industry is based on agriculture and a lot of people don't want to buy food from Fukushima because they don't think it's safe. It's safe. It's fine now. Radiation dissipates. Can't, still can't go really close to the reactor in Fukushima, but the surrounding Fukushima is a massive prefecture in Japan. Most of it is absolutely safe. People live there. They're fine. I spoke to him and I said, you know, someone who's been so deeply personally affected by nuclear energy, what, what's your view on the future? Do you think, do you still think, even though you've been through this, do you still think that nuclear is a way to go forwards? And his reply was yes, just definitely yes. 
We need to be so aware of all of the safety aspects around nuclear. We need to have such great systems in place to make sure something like this not only doesn't happen again, but can't happen again. There's no possibility that it could even happen. And him saying that, even him saying that nuclear is still the way to go, that stuck with me. If we move back to the more specifics of your work, so the zirconium alloys, they have desirable properties in the current environment of fission reactors. And one of the properties you mentioned is low cross-section. Why this property? What made it desirable in the current um, fission reactors? And also why you would make it desirable in fusion environments? So the way we get energy out of a nuclear reaction, be it fusion or fission, we have high energy neutrons. So neutrons are one of the particles in the nucleus of the atom in a fusion or fission reaction when those nuclear reactions happen, you get a really fast neutron flying away. And that's where the energy is. Now, what you need to do is get that energy from the neutron, turn it into heat, use the heat to heat some water up. The water turns the turbine and we get electricity. That's the, the basic premise behind how we get electricity out. So you need to, that neutron that flies away from the reaction, well, you don't want to stop it. You want to let it go. You don't want the stuff that you're building the reactor out of to, to get in the way of the neutron. So zirconium has a really low neutron cross-section. It lets the neutrons pass through it most of the time. So that's why it's really desirable in, in fission. And they've, got, they've designed an alloy that works really well in fission. At the moment, we don't have an alloy that works well enough to be used in the fusion environment. But if we can get an alloy that works well and has this low neutron cross-section, then that would be ideal. What are the reasons, um, despite these desirable properties, why we can't use zirconium alloys yet in fusion environments? So basically, the main one is the, uh, is the heat. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of other, you know, irradiation damage of materials is a huge problem. Um, but it seems more basic, but just the really high temperatures is the main reason that causes us problem with using most metals. So, you know, we try and push the phase transformation temperature higher so that we keep our, keep our really good properties, mechanical properties of our metal really good at the temperatures that it's going to operate at in the reactor. In fission reactors, zirconium alloys make up the rods that contain uranium atoms that are then split to produce the chain reaction. Would that be a similar use in a fusion environment? Fusion is a completely different design concept altogether. The main, the main design idea at the moment that's being used quite widely is a donut-shaped ring of plasma. That plasma has in it the fusion reaction. You then, around the around the plasma, you have your first wall of the reactor that kind of keeps everything behind it a bit safe. And then behind that, we have what we call the breeder blanket, which is where we um, do something called breeding tritium, which is a fuel. We have to make the fuel within the reactor to keep the reactor going, extract the heat so that the reactor doesn't get too hot and use that heat to create electricity. That's what happens in the breeder blanket. And where we really see zirconium being used is as the structural material for that breeder blanket. You need to make that out of something in order to pump things through it. And is there anything currently used instead of, of zirconium? And what would the advantages then be of zirconium over what is currently used? So there's a, a kind of a family of materials called uh, ferritic martensitic steels. Um, Europa is probably the leading candidate of that. Uh, they, they're working on slightly different designs. The, the ideal design, if you're using a zirconium alloy, is to use liquid lithium to pump that through the reactor. Um, that's kind of a, a bit of a moonshot goal for a fusion design. You know, if, if that design works, it solves a lot of problems. At the moment, 
they're using something called a water-cooled lithium lead design. But um, so that puts slightly less restraint on the on the structural material you need. You know, Eurofa is suitable for that application, but Eurofa wouldn't be suitable for the liquid lithium design. So trying to come up with a structural material, there is currently no structural material that is suitable for the liquid lithium design. In terms of your methods, you're going to be creating, creating new zircon and mallow. The question for someone like me who knows nothing about the topic is, is very basic, is how? How do you do it? Making, making the alloys, you know, that's, I mean, I quite enjoy it. It's kind of the fun part of the job. Uh, we've got a machine called a plasma, uh, plasma arc melter. I put um, some raw metal, some very pure individual element metals into the, into the melter. Then you strike up a plasma, get it, you know, for a melting tantalum, they're going to be above 3,000 degrees quite comfortably, 3,200, 3,300 degrees to properly melt and mix tantalum, which is one of the alloying elements. So using that to make the alloys in the first place, and then once they're out, we've got a, a series of other heat treatments to get them into the right, right kind of phases of, of them to start working on them. So we have to use another furnace, a more conventional furnace, taking them up to over 1,000 degrees, 1,200 degrees around that, and uh, to get them in the, right, in the right state to start working on them. You mentioned cold working and aging. I was wondering what that meant exactly. So in material science, and this kind of goes across the board of materials, when you have a, have a material, we talk about its microstructure, so the structure it has on a microscopic level. Um, sometimes you can see this if, you, um, you know, if you've got some pipes around some, or if you go and see some fencing, or sometimes you can see the grains of steel um, in it. Those are huge. If you can see them with your eyes, normally we're looking on the micrometer scale for the size of those grains. And basically, when we cast these materials, they have these huge grains, the huge grain structure. What we want to do is make that grain structure smaller, more refined. Uh, that means that the material becomes stronger, tougher. Its properties just get much better. So we try and put all this work in. We, we, deform, we deform our materials a lot to get a better grain structure so that their properties are better. What do you then do with the alloys? And I'm assuming you observe them and test them. How you actually do that? Are there different techniques? What are the things you try to look for in these alloys? What makes a promising alloy? What are the characteristics you're looking for? So I would say, um, kind of split this down into a few, into a few sections. So what we, we look at the environment that the material is going to be used in. And then we think, what, could, what tests can we do to see whether it will work in that environment? Realistically, for what I work on, we're looking at three conditions. One is that it needs to be stable. So what we do is we get it to a similar temperature to what it's going to be used at in a reactor. Go a bit higher just to speed things up a bit. Go, go a little bit over react temperature, stick it in a furnace at that temperature for a really long time and see if it changes much. If it's stable and it stays pretty much the same, good news. If it changes loads, really bad news. You can't put a material in a reactor that's going to be changing over time. The second one is how its mechanical properties, how good is it at being a structural material? So for that, we use something called a hardness test. We measure the hardness of the material. So we take a take a diamond we carve it we, we get a carved diamond into a pyramid shape and we push it into the surface of the material apply a known force and we measure how much that's deformed the material to know how hard it is and we do that at room temperature but we also want to something i'm working on in my project is to be able to do that at a high temperature to see what the hardness is going to be like when it's in a reactor because knowing how hard it is at room temperature isn't that useful 
And then the third point is um, how the corrosion, so what the environment that the material is going to live in in the reactor. I said we're, the goal is to get it to live in a liquid lithium environment. And to do that, basically, we're going to heat some lithium up, get it to a liquid, its liquid state, put a bit of our sample material in it, leave it in there for a bit and see what it does to it. Pretty basic kind of corrosion testing for that what we're still working on at the moment is once we put it in the liquid lithium how we're going to get it out again because you don't really want to be sticking anything else into liquid lithium so that's that's one of the challenges at the moment and if it performs well in those three if it's if it's stable if it's hard and strong and if it doesn't corrode in liquid lithium good news that's really promising and then we can start to do some really more sophisticated tests obviously we've mentioned fusion environment are there any other realms in which your findings about uh, zirconium could be useful? So realistically, uh, in terms of the tests we're doing, especially like these are really fusion specific, but it's not just magnetic confinement fusion. The environment and the tests we're doing would be quite, would be useful for inertial confinement fusion as well. So we do kind of cover the, the range of fusion technologies. The other region zirconium alloys are being looked at a little bit is um, biomedical applications, hip replacements, things like that. Currently titanium is being used. Titanium and zirconium are really similar basically in a lot of ways chemically so uh, especially as a conium molybdenum alloy which is something we're looking at for the fusion application definitely has crossover into the biomedical field and hasn't been researched a huge amount so there's potential that some of the stuff we're doing will contribute to that but the tests we're doing are not massively related now to make a, a bit of a crossover with why i am which is a social scientist Something that's really well documented in social sciences, which is a positive bias in the findings. So researchers that generally tend to be happier if they find that X causes Y rather than if they find that X does not cause Y. And we call it a bias because obviously it's still very important to know that something does not cause something else or something doesn't work. It is important knowledge. And I was wondering if you thought there was something similar in your area, in the sciences in general, if you'd be happier and in general people are happier if you find that something works rather than it does not. Definitely. I mean, if you think about these projects, you know, uh, I'm going to be spending the next few years of my life kind of devoting myself to zirconium research. So uh, at the end of it, it's not going to make me feel great if I have to publish and say, you know, nah, not going to work. No, obviously I'm going to feel so much better if, uh, if I can go and say, look, look at this great work I've done. It's definitely a real possibility. So I think that's kind of a bit of a human nature thing for sure. But I think we've got really good processes in place in the scientific community, having supervisors, obviously, that can look at your work a little bit more critically, a peer review process before you publish any papers and things like that. So hopefully there are kind of these slight barriers in the way of people just being overly optimistic and positive. To finish this podcast, I'm going to ask questions a bit more about your own personal path. What made you want to study materials in the first place? And Currently, uh, what, what are the things you enjoy most in your research? What do you enjoy doing most? Originally, I was in, uh, in sixth form at school, so I was 16, 17, and I was kind of not really sure what I wanted to do at university. I was thinking physics, engineering, something like that. I knew I wanted to be in that kind of area. And then a lady from Cambridge University came to give a talk at my school, and she was postdoctoral researcher in material science. And uh, I'd never heard of material science as its own degree before. And I was like, that's, that's exactly what I'm interested in. And then I realized that I could do that as my undergrad degree rather than just doing it as part of a small part of a bigger degree. It was kind of a, once I, once I realized it was a degree, it was kind of a no brainer for me. What I'm doing now, I mean, I, I really, I really enjoy how broad 
the subject can be and our, our nuclear research group is is quite big but there's people researching electronics batteries you know it, it can be it can be quite broad the research um and it's great hearing about other people's stuff i, I quite like the hands-on aspect as well I, i'm not i'm not a massive fan of sitting behind the computer all day every day i quite like going and making things hitting things with hammers that kind of thing so that's uh, yeah i enjoy being able to go and do stuff well thank you very much for your time that was absolutely fascinating uh, thanks so much if you're listening make sure you keep updated with stamp the sanand mcr podcast available on all the main podcast platforms as well as on the sanand mcr website at sanandmcr.org.uk you can follow us on social media we have a twitter and instagram account at stamp podcast uh, where you can be updated with the next episodes If you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe on whatever platforms you're listening. Uh, make sure you share it with your friends and with whoever might like it. And it's also time for me to give the credit, due credit for Joe Everington for the music of this podcast. Thank you very much.